Kathleen Kelly. Hello, this is a coincidence. Would you mind if I sat down? Yes, yes, I would, actually. I'm expecting someone. Thanks. Pride and Prejudice. Do you mind? I bet you read that book every year. I bet you just love that Mr. Darcy, and your sentimental heart just beats wildly at the thought that he and, um, well, you know, whatever her name is, are truly, honestly going to end up together. Can I get you something? No, no, he's not staying. Mochaccino, decaf, non-fat. No, no, you are not staying. I'll just stay here until your friend gets here. Gee, is he late? The heroine of Pride and Prejudice is Elizabeth Bennet. She is one of the greatest and most complex characters ever written, not that you would know. As a matter of fact, I've read it. Oh, well, good for you. I think you'd discover a lot of things if you really knew me. If I really knew you, I know what I would find instead of a brain, a cash register, instead of a heart, a bottom line. What? I just had a breakthrough. What is it? I have you to thank for it for the first time in my life when confronted with a horrible, insensitive person. I knew exactly what I wanted to say, and I said it. Well, I think you have a gift for it. That was a perfect blend of poetry and meanness. Meanness? Let me tell you something about meanness. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to pay you a compliment. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Point 10 podcast. I'm Derek Gottlieb, and this is our very last show of season one. Also, and relatedly, our very last show of 2022. I could think of no better way to send us all off in this solstice season of lighting the darkness than with a consideration of 1998's You've Got Mail, starring Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, and featuring Greg Kinnear, Parker Posey, Steve Zahn, and Dave Chappelle. And when we need to talk about the larger significance of Nora Ephron movies, I could think of no better guest than Dr. Annie Schultz. Annie, so good to see you again. So good to see you, Dr. Gottlieb, Dr. Derek Gottlieb, Esquire. God, how dare I forget to address you by your title. This is very important, as we have uh, already established. I, I'm so excited to talk about You've Got Mail, because I think that we're going to have really differing opinions on its overall quality. But let me just start by being like, one thing that I literally thought as I was rewatching this, I want you to know that I've watched this movie three times in the last two days, which is crazy. That's way more prep than I need to do. Uh, I, I don't know how this has happened. One time it was just because Chelsea was like, oh, the, you're, you're doing a rom-com this time? I'll watch it with you. I was like, surely you've seen this. And she was like, I don't think that I ever have, which is crazy to me. Sacrilege. Sacrilege. Ultimately, she's like, this movie kind of sucks. So I know, I know it was, it was baffling to me as well. Anyway, in our last episode, we did my best friend's wedding. And one of the comments uh, that you made was like, yes, this is like the whitest movie of all time. And a literal thought that I had about three quarters of the way through this was, was that like, I mean, this comes out a year later than my best friend's wedding. It's as though you've got mail was like, hold my beer. I'm going to somehow continue to be the whitest movie that you've ever seen, despite also featuring Dave Chappelle. The only other person of color in this movie is the cash register. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's this is all true. It's very white. Um, all of Nora Ephron's films are that way. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 
it sucks. I don't, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> it's a movie. It's a movie about, in some ways, it's about like the gentrification of a, a New York City neighborhood, and the fact that there's no mention of, uh, you know, I don't know, poverty or uh, any type of marginal marginalization is um, sucks. But I mean, I guess I just don't. I mean, have in that regard high expectations of sure. these rom-coms of the sure. 90s um but yeah it's it's white as shit it's just like i that was really it was it's really like the it's very class conscious like the whole plot line about like you know big box stores coming into uh you know lower the quality of a neighborhood to the lowest common denominator or whatever but like there's also the element of like oh you poor upper west siders this must be so difficult for you. Yeah, but here's the thing. It's not class, class conscious. Like, it's all aesthetic. This is, this is like, one of the big points I wanted to make is it's, it's aesthetic. It's not even, like, gentrification in, like, economic gentrification. Yeah. It's all about changing, like, the, the ambiance and the essence and the feel of the neighborhood, which is also a problem and I think is related to class, you know, outside the world of this movie. Yeah. But no, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the movie is class conscious at all. It's, it's all aesthetic, which is, you know, why I, whatever, maybe shittily love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely didn't want to start this, this uh, recording by making you, by, by being like, explain, justify your love <laughs> for this movie. Why I love this white movie. This movie is this movie is really great in a lot of ways. And like here's here's the hottest take that I can muster on it. I think that the real the real romantic object here, the real object of love, is the city of New York. I'm just 100%. again just saying that like I'm just saying that this is a Nora Ephron movie. I have like actual sort of like I, I love that aspect about it, but I'm just like I'm like, oh, I would like the soundtrack is exactly when Harry met Sally. There's there's so many beats that are exactly the same. That, and again, I love when Harry met Sally. Yeah, no, I love when Harry met Sally too. I'm I'm a I'm a fan of Nora Ephron in general. I will admit I haven't read um, any of her novels. I know there's Me at least two, but I I do I am intrigued by Nora Ephron as a figure and. As I said in our text exchange, I do want to read just one sentence. So um, the New Yorker did a piece on Nora Ephron back in August of, of this year, huh. of 2022. Um, and I and I read it in, you know, when when it was current. But I thought about it and I thought, oh, I have to find this and reread it um, in, in anticipation of this episode that we're doing. So this is uh, Rachel Syme, I think, S-Y-M-E, um, who writes of Nora Ephron, quote, if Ephron has a lasting legacy as a writer, a filmmaker, and a cultural icon, it's this. She showed how we can fall in love and out of love with people based solely on the words that they speak and write. Words are important. Choose them carefully. Um. And I think that's so, that's, that's what this movie is about. It's about writing and talking and it's about words. And when Harry met Sally is like that too. It's like yeah. about a 10 year, like verbal rhetorical, like foreplay between these, 
these two people. And I think she's doing that again. And the other thing I want to say about Nora Ephron that's interesting is, you know, her contemporaries are, and this is in this New Yorker piece too, these aren't like my original ideas, but she was a contemporary to Joan Didion and Susan Sontag. And I think the reason why she, the only reason why she didn't rise to like the literary merit, I guess, that a Joan Didion or a Susan Sontag did, like the, the literary or whatever philosophical merit that they did is because of, of money. She started writing scripts, movie scripts, because she was broke yeah. and had like two two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's significant. Maybe we can bring class into this conversation th- we're, after we're all. Definitely going to have to, given the given the overall sort of aesthetics of the movie. So that's really an interesting thing to know about Nora Ephron. From the very opening shot of this movie, I was absolutely in love with its visual aesthetic the the opening shot like whatever it's uh, uh for like first of all we've got like 90s computer aesthetics going on like the love the, it you've got, love it like the, I, my god i love the aesthetic of the internet of old yeah love it on honestly whenever you started this conversation by saying i think we're going to disagree on um what i thought you were gonna say is that we were gonna disagree on the like retro tech ethos of the movie because to our listeners at home i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that derek i think you're pretty like tech positive like pro tech let's say and um and i am i I think like the grayer character (laughs) in the conversation i mean i'm not quite as far down the rabbit hole as my um my typewriter enthusiast partner is but um, I am in general, like, you know, I've read uh, some Cal Newport. I've kind of like, you know, um, drank the digital minimalist Kool-Aid, mm-hmm. so to speak, you know. Um, so I love um, I love the moment of the Internet, of the early Internet that this movie captures. And I love. I remember when AOL was the internet. Yes, I do. I absolutely like that's the thing for me is like, I love how it looks because it is like uh, returning to uh, an actual physical place that I haven't been to in a long time. For me, that's very autobiographical. Like I was the recipient of God knows how many like hundred free hours on AOL, whatever CDs when I was in high school. Uh, I don't feel like my family ever took them up on that or that's not what I remember I remember AOL like I remember going to my girlfriend's house and like she had like their the family computer room was like in an office in the basement and like that's where AOL happened for me I never had like an aim ID or anything like that like I didn't I didn't do anything with AOL aside from get on the internet, but everything about like the sound of the dial-up modem, uh, the way, like the, the old kinds of things just brings me right back to being like, you know, 16 and, uh, in love with my girlfriend and playing that stupid pinball game that was on all the like, you know, PCs at, uh, around that time for just hours and hours on end. So, but I also remember, I remember what the internet was like, which is to say that like, you had to go and look for like, chat rooms or uh discussion groups or whatever and then like all obviously all of that changed 
really in the late 90 in the late 90s but in the early 2000s with like friendster and myspace and everything where suddenly it was just like you could go find everybody that you could ever want to interact with on some platform blah 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 blah. i wouldn't say that yeah. i'm tech positive that makes me sound a little like a little more like elon musk and like in terms of like a tech utopianism kind of thing i'm definitely i'm definitely not you know, a Luddite anymore. I definitely enjoy using <laughs> uh, technology, but I also don't. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's all we can get into Greg <laughs> Kinnear's character later on. No, I, I didn't mean at all to imply that you're um, Elon Musk. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. No, I, I love the, you know, the, the opening scene when they're like sneaking around like teenagers yes yes and and i love just the 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 computer on the desk you know like it's it's still somewhere you have to go yes and 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 i love similarly whenever um you know he uh whenever joe fox has like figured out that like kathleen kelly is shop girl and they've mm-hmm. like made this plan to me and he discovers it's her the scene you were you were telling me about is like apparently line for line from yeah. shop around the corner. Yeah. Um, and you know, and he, in her, in of course, in Kathleen Kelly's mind in Y one five two, whom, who she does not know is Joe Fox yet, um, has stood her up and, and he knows Joe Fox knows that, right. This is, this is, yeah, this is a little inception-y, but anyway, yeah. the scene I'm talking about is when he's trying to figure out what it is that he's going to say to shop girl, yeah. like what email right. he's going to write. And he's like pacing at the threshold of his office and, and the laptop is there. And he's like doing that thing where he's like pacing back and forth and like seeing it. And he's like, uh, uh, and you know, I, I yeah. don't know quite how to describe this, but I love it. Um, and that's what the computer used to be. It wasn't like an extension of you. It wasn't yes. a pen appendage. It was still sort of like a place that you went. Like it was so much more of an object. I am so happy that you brought that up because that is literally one of the topics that I wanted to talk about. Like coming into that. So like you have the whole credit sequence, which is which is basically like uh, you know, a nineties computer graphics version of New York. But then the opening shot is this long sort of traveling, like a pan up the edge of the building and in through her window and all this stuff. But everything about that shot is immaculate. The detailing around the window, the sort of like, you know, carefully staged, but also kind of chaotic bookshelves that line her thing. They're like, it's very nineties, but also extremely homey. Like this is the thing about Nora Ephron movies, and it, it's unclear to me if it's if it's something about the writing or like how much sort of stage direction or set direction is actually in the script. But they're like every interior in her movies, every interior shot is really beautiful. And the thing that I noticed as well is like there is like Joe Fox and uh, Kathleen Kelly have actual writing desks like there is like still a small yeah. desk at which they write in a special room like I, I'm talking to you from my office, which is like a like five foot by 10 foot sort of like it's technically a bedroom. But like here is my desk. But I work here 60 percent of the time when I'm when I'm doing work and the rest of the time I'm like at the kitchen table or on the couch with my laptop or my phone or any of the other various pieces of uh, equipment that I write with, because I mean, you're. I know it's not necessarily an original use, but your use of appendage is really quite right. I take 
my work with me wherever I go. I always have some kind of device on which I can do that stuff. And it is really, it's, uh, the the opening shots of this movie are sort of a nice reminder that technology doesn't change everything all at once. It happens very gradually where like a new technology will come in and it has to fit into the sort of the life ways and the physical infrastructure of people's lives as they existed in some other time. So like a laptop replaces a typewriter, but that doesn't require an entire change of the office. And it's, it's like battery power gets better and his laptops get lighter. Then suddenly the desk sort of vanishes or like gets stashed away in some, it's not a central part of like one's interior space anymore. It's just like, you know, it's nice to have a flat surface that is dedicated to this task, but it's also not super necessary. So yeah. Well, to, I mean, to be fair, there are a few shots where both Kathleen Kelly and Joe Fox do, they are in bed with the yeah. computer, with the laptop. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this is such a thing. So actually, Brad, uh, we, we watched this together last night and something that he noted was, you know, they're like doing this email thing, but like right after the initial, you know, email exchange as the movie opens, you see Meg Ryan leaving her front door, you know, it, like just luxuriating in the fall, the autumn New York air and, you know, taking in everything around her. It's like people, whereas now, you know, no, I mean, no one's really doing that. They're like on their phones. Yeah, exactly. Um, or they're like thinking about the next time they can stop and like check their shit. Yeah. Um, but both of these characters are just very, as you said, they're like sensuously aesthetically in love with new york yeah um a thing about nora efron movies in general is that like you know we're it's we're recording this during the christmas season and netflix has a million of those sort of rom-coms and like the setting matters but like it's always like a mountain town or there's always some sort of it's like it's just a way the setting is just a way to contain characters one of the things that was really striking about nora efron movies is how it like not only do they take place in New York, but they take place across multiple seasons that are yes. that, like is very apparent. So like it's not just that romance takes a long time, but that each season of a romance slash the city is worth paying attention to in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I caught that you said rom-com holiday movies that take place in mountain towns. You are talking about Hallmark Christmas movies. Sorry. Yes. They all take place okay. in mountain towns. And I just want to clarify for our listeners that um, Hallmark movies or Lifetime movies or anything of that ilk are a completely different planet, too. Yes. And, you know, okay, the the word rom-com, I just feel like has come to mean something else. These early rom-coms, like we talked about My Best Friend's Wedding and You've Got Mail, it is very smart. It yeah. is so well written. It's philosophical. I mean, okay. Um, both Heidegger and Foucault are mentioned in this in this movie. At least there might be there might have been others, um, but I don't think that that uh, rom the rom com kept with this. I think they're they're not smart like this anymore. Um, well, they're not they're not even trying to be. If you want to bring some like class politics into it now, it's like Netflix realized that like you know around this time of year. There is a certain demographic of people that is just looking for just endless content. It doesn't matter if it's good. And so they will just produce the shit out of anything. It's like a miracle when something is actually somewhat decent. But like there's no care that goes into this, really. It's like a bunch of actors that you have never seen in anything before in your life. And you never will again because it's not a bridge to anywhere. It's just 
here's something to watch for two hours while sort of like you're between relative visits or whatever. Yeah, you know, I think this movie is really smart. You said that we're going to disagree on the quality and you said that Chelsea said it kind of sucks. So so why? Why does okay. she think it sucks? Great. So it, it it is all about the plotting. Like, so it's impossible. This is just a general rule for this podcast. It's impossible to spoil a movie that is almost 30 years old. So like, or whatever, 25 years old at this point. So like, we're not going to like get into that. But like, as... As we're getting towards the end of the movie, there's a lot of beats in this movie that are like lifted, you know, directly off the source material, which itself turns out to have been like a Hungarian play. It's really weird. Like, I recommend the the 1940 film Shop Around the Corner is worth a watch. Okay. Jimmy Stewart is good <laughs> in it. Like, it's good. It's good and tight. It's supposed to take place in Budapest. I was like, what the fuck? But that's because it turns out to be like the the source material of it is a Hungarian play called like the perfumery or whatever. Um, It's very odd. It's very odd how everybody has Hungarian names but are speaking with American accents in this movie. So like that's that that was an odd thing. But like there's two big differences. The first one is that like the the entire storyline about like a shop being driven out of business by a particular sort of development in the, you know, politico economic like stratosphere is absent entirely. The two characters in fact work together in a shop. One of them is like, like a senior sales person. And the other one is like a new sales. The, the woman is like a new saleswoman, and that's, but like there isn't a huge power differential in the way that there is in uh, this movie, which, which changes things. And the 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 amount of time that is spent when Jimmy Stewart knows that his co-worker is also his anonymous love interest is much shorter in that movie. The movie itself is only like, you know, an hour and a half or something like that. So the movie itself is shorter. Uh, You've Got Mail draws that out to such an extent. And Joe Fox is like it became immediately uncomfortable after the cafe scene to be like, he has stood her up and now he's going to try to be like playing like two different romance games at the same time in this way that felt kind of manipulative. And I felt like, because I didn't remember the end of the movie when I first saw it, I'm like, I know this has to end happily. Like, but how is this realistically in a way that like, is it minimally psychologically real? Is she going to show up and be like, holy shit, you son of a bitch. What have you been doing for the last like six weeks? This has all been an elaborate setup. Like how does she get herself to a space in which, you know, she gets to say that last line about like, I was hoping it was you. What the fuck? What? Like if you were hoping it was him, why didn't you just like take whatever? Okay, serious deja vu, because we're having the same disagreement, sort of, that we had about my best friend's wedding, which is... I love this. You just, like, how can I be this much more, like, literary than you? You just want it to be, you want it to be, you're looking for some uh, realism in it, right? So, okay, I I don't know why I'm on this track but like my best friend's wedding i see this movie as a parable (laughs) wherein you know the characters embody the old and the new like modernity versus some kind of like vintage upper west side fantasia um so all right just hear me out with my parable theory here 
Joe Fox, the character, just embodies like, you know, um, you know, modernity in the sense of, you know, whatever, impending like postmodern techno, whatever, like gentrification. And Greg Kinnear, who is the 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 like original lover, right? That yes. you know, that doesn't last. Right. Yes. He is, you know, the past and in and, and, and not even in a subtle way. He's like the caricature of, you know, an elbow patches intellectual. Oh Let God, I, that's so I great. love that character. By the way. I love him. He nails it. He nails it. The way that um he like uh whenever he writes the the article and what is it in the Inquirer? Um, the Observer. A, about the shop around the corner and he's like mouthing his own words as someone else is reading them. And then ditto when they're watching him on the talk show, that is so, that's brilliant. Cause that's so what these people brilliant. are like, these people that you and I like spend time around and yes. like go to conferences <laughs> with just like the masturbation, like the, the love of one's own words is just so great. Anyway. Right. So that character is, you know, is the past like, um, and Kathleen is sort of in this, liminal space of kind of wanting to hold on to the past right like her whole shop is a relic of the past her, her mother, own personal past yeah. mm -hmm. as well as the past of the upper west side of new york city and the new right joe fox is like slowly seducing her us via her in into... fact, he says that explicitly at the beginning of the movie. He talks yeah. about like they're like you, they're going to protest us. They don't yes. want us there. He's like, no, we're going to seduce them. He says, yes, yes, and you know, I mean, all the characters here are just so like I don't know quite how to place Joe Fox's like initial partner, girlfriend, the like pub the high power like publicist, yeah. publishing executive. Um, but there's something going on there with her too. Oh, that's okay. She's like the sellout establishment. Yeah, And Joe mm -hmm. Fox is sort of like, he's not a complete sellout. Like he's self-aware enough to know what it is, his role in all this is. And I don't think he's entirely happy with it because I think that, um, I forget the character, Patricia. I yeah. think that Patricia is sort of like the far end of that. And he's not really interested in it. He wants some heart. He doesn't just want to be a bottom line in right. like a suit with no head, right? right. He wants some of that ro romance that yeah. the Kathleen character can provide. I mean, it really matters, too, that, like, Patricia is really successful and driven in type A and all the way that, like, you know, stereotypical New Yorkers are and is beautiful and works in the arts. But also she's she's the one that gets to deliver the line. Like, she's so impressed with Greg Kinnear. And she talks about, like, oh, my, he just I thought he'd be so abstract and abstruse. And he's all about Heidegger and Foucault. I don't understand any of it, really. And blah, blah, yeah. blah. And so, like, that's simultaneously Joe Fox is like, I'm not interested in any of that. And also, I would like somebody who is interested in that to understand what it's about. So, like, that, like, I don't know, that that's sort of, their relationship never made any sense to me. There's, like, Joe Fox is, like, there's a couple of times where he does stuff that, like, now, you know, 25 years later looks problematic beyond the sort of like manipulative line to her that he does as part of just the, the general plot structure, the, when they are in the grocery store together and both of them have lived in New York city I, in Manhattan specifically for, 
for their whole life life. we are led to believe and somehow like i was really expecting so meg ryan is in i'm just going to use i use actor and character names interchangeably don't yeah you're a realist you can't can't buy into i can't see the fucking metaphor behind it and no depth to the characters meg ryan is in line to buy something that what looks like at like a a version like 1.0 of trader joe's and uh and she turns out to be in the cash only line, but all she has is a credit card. And she has been dodging, and Joe Fox has been dodging because they hate each other, like this encounter. And all of a sudden, all these pushing New Yorkers behind her are like, there's a sign. How can you be in the wrong line? And the, and the humorless cashier is unwilling to like swipe the card. And then in, sw- like, in swoops Tom Hanks. And I was like... Obviously, he's going to like pull. He's like his whole thing is he's rich. He's going to pull out a wad of cash and solve this problem. But no, all he does is like very patronizingly charm the cashier who there's nobody more charming on earth, including Tom Hanks, than Meg Ryan. And yet the way that like we are asked to believe that the cashier responds to this man who is basically like, can't you just give him a break? Or give us a break. Can't you just swipe the card? Can't you just do this? And then the cashier like is like, oh, this is this is very cute. I will smile at you and I will do the thing. And then Meg Ryan is like, oh, thank you so much. And the cashier's smile just drops immediately. She's like, give me my pen back, basically. I was like, what the fuck? So like, I forget even where I started with this point. But like that, that scene is one in which I was like, I, I don't know. What, I don't know exactly what to make of it. It bothers you? It bothers me. Um, so I, I find that totally realistic. I mean, and it's a part of the Joe Fox character development, right? He's, you know, like he's a a schmoozing kind of power man. And that's what, that's what men like that are like. I see that all the time. This isn't a dated thing. I like, okay. It's, I guess an example most relevant maybe to our world is the way that students, react differently to humor from a male professor versus a female one right Mm -hmm. like the same joke would be like oh like so charming and clever and like challenging but you know if a woman and and by the way i'm speaking in like you know heterosis gendered sort of terms here Mm -hmm. like masculine and feminine presenting people but if a woman does it's it's received completely differently by women too right yeah Mm -hmm. Um, so I find that totally believable, like, um, like a, you know, kind of a power broker, a man like that just comes over and just sort of like moves power around. I see that all the time. Sure, it's totally sure. believable. Believable, but, it, but it doesn't quite fit. I don't think with the, the character that we otherwise see Joe Fox being, I guess like, I'm like, what do I want? What do I want this character to be? Do I want him to be like, constantly? exactly. And here I'm like, here I'm like, it's not realistic enough, but like what makes it not realistic enough in my analysis is like, it's not consistent enough metaphorically uh, in terms of uh, Hanks's character. So he has this moment in bed with Parker Posey, who is phenomenal. It's, it's Parker Posey plays Patricia we're only like three years removed from her being like the queen bee uh, head cheerleader figure in Dazed and Confused, which I maintain, aside from all of her work in Christopher Guest movies, is absolutely her best role. But like, I can't not. So like anytime she puts on that, like, I'm going to be self-centered and loud and aggressive. I love that. 
I like she does that better than anybody, I think, uh, as an actress. So like he's had Tom Hanks has had this moment with Parker Posey in bed in which in which she she is essentially like, oh, he's he's so like he talks about Heidegger and Foucault and I don't get it. And I just took a sleeping pill. So she's asleep immediately. And then right. he goes, like he's like, I am not satisfied with this. There's something about me that has led me to this life that I'm like pushing against. But then and then in the grocery store and like. A, a scene that is very close to that. I can't remember if it's before or after that. I think after he's it, it, then he is essentially, you know, remains the person. He, I guess, what am I saying? He hasn't transformed yet. <laughs> oh, I have something to contribute here. So what I think, so both both of these characters, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan's characters, at various points in the movie have these sort of like existential kind of soliloquies. Um, both in the way that you just described where it's sort of like nonverbal and we kind of see it happening and interactions and when they're writing to each other and you know it's worth pointing out that all their emails to each other all their correspondence they stay very abstract like very kind of which I guess is their agreement um it's like blogs did not agree or blogs did not agree blogs did not exist at this point and it is like they are just blogging to each other right to each other so i read this well i couldn't read the whole thing because it was behind a paywall so i read what i could of it this um atlantic thing uh it's one of their like special newsletters or something um about the gentrification of the self and how did you read it Mm -hmm. you're behind the paywall I am behind the paywall. Okay, well, you know more about it than than I than I do, but that that um, I feel that kind of coming up in this movie. I guess because I watched the movie and read a little bit of this thing at the same time, Mm -hmm. I feel like both of these characters are kind of facing a gentrification of the self. Like they're both kind of wondering like where they fit in in this changing city, in this changing like book book. book landscape which by the way how precious is it that in this movie they think that the the chain the bookstore chain will be the end of books <laughs> i know i'm literally like it's it's really it's like uh at one point she's like oh poor you joe fox you multi-millionaire and i'm like you guys do not see bezos on the horizon like yeah. at all it is not part of your imaginary that like this entire world is about to go straight up belly up yeah, and and a book empire will have zero to do with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, hey, oh my god, you sell discount books? Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Are... Yeah, I know. That is really precious. But I mean, I you know, yeah, I I agree with you that the the plot is imperfect and the you know, the development of the relationship and the characters might be a little bit awkward, but you know, that's not why I, I love this movie. I go back to it, which, I, as I said to you, this is in, like, my top five favorite movies. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. And I go back to it again and again because it's atmospheric and because it's a it's it's a love letter both to New York City but also to words and to, like, these kind of little experiences. Like, um, you know, sitting in a cafe uh, with a book and a rose, waiting for like an anonymous lover, um, buying flowers on a crisp fall morning, bouquets of sharpened pencils. I also love the way that Nora Ephron treats objects. Yes, yes. I really do. I So I uh, you threw me in our last conversation with the Gramsci and Cavell, but... 
Um, <laughs> what I was kind of thinking of in regards to objects and the way they're treated in this movie is it's a little uh it's a little gram harmony a little yeah yeah mm-hmm. gram gram harmony yes to be yep. sure there's a little bit of um of triple o here and i'm thinking about yeah. like when she's waiting in the cafe for ny152 mm-hmm. and she has the book in the rose and she's like kind of resituating yeah. things uh-huh. And the flowers like falling, like the mm-hmm. head of the the rose is like yeah. weighing it down, and she's like trying to figure out what to do with it, and she ends up putting it in the book. And I love those little moments because um, that's an object, right? Like withdrawing, yeah. like exceeding mm-hmm. our ability to deal with it. And I feel like the laptops in this movie do that too. Like they are objects on their own. The mm-hmm. butterfly in the subway. Um, yeah, I like that. I like the atmosphere of this movie, I guess, more mm-hmm. than, you know, I don't know, like the actual love story. And I love the um, the Greg Kinnear character. We haven't even talked about the bookstore I, employees yet. We are absolutely coming to that. I was I was going to transition to the bookstore in particular with the objects like that bookstore feels like. It is an absolute aspiration of every neighborhood bookstore I've ever been in. Every every bookstore that I've ever gone to has been aspiring to be that kind of thing, equally precious. I mean, it's just a children's bookstore, right? It's like, and so like, you know, they've got story time and she's got the hat, I, all these little details that you're like, I fully believe that she inherited the shop from her mom, that she invests it with care, that like it is important to her, obviously, that like she uh, that she is able to make a living from it and keep it open. But that's I also fully believe that that has nothing to do with why she goes there every day. And it's like it is a healthy work-life balance, weirdly, given how completely those two things uh, merge, but it's just become sort of who she is. The place, coming back to the idea of class politics, the thing that I, I kept, that kept striking me as weird is that like she and Joe Fox keep running into each other at like social events. I'm like, what we have here is like a sort of like, she is losing her place. Like we're in the middle of exploding economic inequality in the United States that hasn't really caught up to people yet, but she is about Mm -hmm. to fall off the map. And like the Joe Fox of the world are about to like capture all of the value that uh, uh, is in society. And yet here at this, like at this moment, they're still operating in sort of the same, in the same social circles in which they are able to speak to one another because their problems are similar enough that, uh, their problems, their lives, et cetera, are similar enough that they still have something to uh, talk about. It's it's always just super weird for me to like read interviews with like the likes of Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or Bezos because I'm like, I don't even understand what your lives are like, like what you wake up and do every day or think about. And it, it's so divorced from any reality that I know. And like, we're not in that world yet with, with, multi-millionaire Joe Fox. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost kind of, um, and you know, I'm thinking of like the three Fox generations, um, which by the way, is that from like, 
I'm not sure what to do with, you know, the grandfather of Joe Fox, the most senior Fox yeah. knew Cecilia mm-hmm. Kelly, yeah. Kathleen yeah, Kelly's exactly. mother. Um, and then, you know, you've got like the, the, the second Fox. So Joe Fox's father who mm-hmm. has like a young, well, they both have young children right and there's yes, like oh, yes this that's is- exactly it i was trying like this is on the second rewatch when i'm rewatching it with chelsea i'm like no don't worry she's like she's his aunt and i'm like and chelsea's like how is that gonna work and i'm like it's because it's his father's and the, like yeah. so it took like a couple i'm like no the mm-hmm. girl who's like eight or something is his grandfather's daughter daughter yeah and then the kid the boy is his dad's son. Son, yeah, yeah. and and then the his, the like most the wife du jour of um yeah of uh the Fox second like ends up running off with the the nanny yeah um, after hitting on Joe Fox for like most of the movie yeah so is that is I wonder is that supposed to be like this just kind of oh this is the moneyed class or this is like you know. Um, this is like post-modernity where everybody's just like having kids until they drop dead or something. And there's like kind of this weird, like um, American family. I don't know. I, I didn't, I don't, I don't know quite what to do with that. There was a line than... in the movie that said that I was like, I was thinking like modern family, like the TV show has a yeah. similar ish plot where there's like, you know, children of multiple generations, essentially, uh, of the same Al Bundy, uh, progeny. But they 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 say something like it's the I was expecting them to say modern family, but they say something different: contemporary family, American family, the new family. I forget what it is in this movie, but they reference that, or like there's they say something about it. I don't know exactly what to do with that, other than to think of the foxes in general as attached to objects, but in a fleeting sense, in a way that doesn't involve something like care that is that is simply about possession uh, for possession's sake it's like easy come easy go you know i don't know i feel like the the object thing is a nora efron thing and i think it's in like okay for example a, a, a moment when it involves the foxes um when tom hanks the youngest joe fox is like I think maybe there he's in the office of of Daddy Fox. The, the, yes, right. Mm. Not Granddaddy Fox, but Daddy Fox. Um, and he's like on the sofa, and he keeps yes. like talk, he's like, "What is this material? Like, what is this?" And then he, you know, it comes up a few times, and he gets up, and he's like, "Oh, and now it's all over my suit." There, there's nothing that drives the plot yeah. there, but she likes including those things. And similarly, the scene when. Kathleen Kelly is sick and Joe Fox yeah. comes over mm-hmm. to her house, which yeah. that's a little strange and can't Brad also and I were lifted. like, what, like, what yeah. is this? Like, what, what is, why is she sick? Why does she have to be sick? I think I, okay. I could be like way overreaching here. I don't think Nora Ephron is an object oriented ontologist no. um, or was um, when she was still with us, but okay. I, you know, when she is like picking up the piles of tissues and yeah. like shoving mm-hmm. them in the coat pocket and you know like pushing like pushing them into like bowls and stuff you're just like having to retrieve and like make these tissues disappear okay probably because i'm reading this right now but it just reminds me so much i'm reading um timothy morton's contribution Ugh. to 
to bl- oh yeah <laughs> for the listeners at home you should all know that my life is basically just events that punctuate me reading timothy morton's blog obsessively <laughs> um and everything he publishes but anyway i'm reading right now so bloomsbury is doing bloomsbury is doing this series called object lessons and there's a bunch of great people who uh, have contributed. So actually, Randy Malamud, who's somebody I really yep. like, does mm-hmm. one on email, nice. um, which I'm you know going to order and read next. But anyway, I'm reading Timothy Morton's um, and his object that he's exploring a spacecraft. But anyway, he's specifically the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. But whatever. Anyway, he has a chapter in in this. I'm sorry, they have a chapter in this um, called Garbage. And they're making the point that garbage isn't a real thing. Garbage is things that have exceeded our ability to deal with them. Um, But there they are, maybe not here, but somewhere, like, regardless of, you know, if we're choosing to deal with it or not. And that's just, I, there's so many instances of that in this movie, the tissues, the flour, the like, um, moleskin shit from the, from the sofa and countless others, Uh, the fish, the fish in the, um, the bag, the clear bag, uh, Uh, the, which I want to come back to these bookstore employees because we didn't really Mm -hmm. talk about them, Mm -hmm. but George, the bookstore employee, which I love that actor. I can't remember his name. Steve Zahn. Yeah, he is so great. Is he the one in Joyride? Is that him? Joyride with Paul Paul Walker and Lily Sobieski. I oh my know. god, we, we have to do that movie next. Okay, deal. That is Seriously. a great movie. Oh my god. We have to do that. Okay. Okay, anyway. Um so he says, um, I love this. The like um the ecology like uh enthusiast in me just loves this. He says, um and he, it's just his voice in the background. He says, who belongs to this fish? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he has so many great little quips like that. Like uh, he at one point says, maybe we should bomb Fox Books. <laughs> yeah, he does. He's he's a really interesting character. And I, this is like a younger Steve Zahn. Most of the Steve Zahn I know is like him, him playing some sort of like dumb, washed up character. But this is like young, yeah. vibrant intellectual Steve Zahn who like ends up working for Fox books and requiring that people have PhDs in children's literature in order to work in his department, which, yes, which is, yeah. And I also love when Joe Fox is like looking at the old book in, in, uh, what's his name? Zahn, Steve, Steve Zahn. Yeah. Steve Mm -hmm. Zahn's like, yeah, the illustrations are hand tipped and Joe Fox is like, is that why it costs so much? And he says, no, that's why it's worth so much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) An excellent salesman right there. And then he ends up using that example to be like, this is why we're not going to go under because we have loyal customers. Yes, who, you know, yes, like, yes, yes, yes. And then the um, the uh, other bookstore employee, and she is also, she's famous in another stuff, but I can't remember her name either. I can't remember her name either. I actually like looked her up on IMDb and was like, I don't think I've seen any of this other stuff that she's been in. Yeah, but she's I, in other but stuff. But she's very recognizable. But speaking of like um, class and like the impending like economic uh, issues, she mm-hmm. has the one line like, you know, we, if we go under, I, 
I'm not going to be able to afford my rent. And I'm going to have to move to Brooklyn. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, <laughs> it's coming. Don't worry. Everybody will move with you. Yes. And it'll be like too posh for you to afford as well in 10 exactly. years. Exactly. Yeah. It's insane. So we we need to get to the Greg Kinnear character. So oh, like, yes. let me say that like the minute that character appeared on screen and like, you know, bent his head down to the typewriter and was like a report. You hear the keystroke. I just, I literally laughed out loud being like, I, I cannot believe that I get to talk about this with Dr. Annie Schultz uh, and just make fun of her partner, Brad. And then as, as the character wore on, I'm like, Oh no, this is making fun of me too. Especially with like the way that he like loves to hear people, complimented stuff i was like oh god i hate this i hate what this is saying about me it's bad (laughs) he's all of us he's all of us yeah no i mean i uh so the typewriter thing so uh listeners might not know that tom hanks in real life is a typewriter enthusiast of course he is he is um I highly recommend the documentary California typewriter. He's featured in it prominently. He has like one of the largest collections of restored typewriters in North America. And actually, if you type a letter to Tom Hanks on a typewriter and mail it to him, he will respond supposedly. Um, So I'm sure he had something to do with this kind of addition Mm -hmm. uh in the movie although it's kind of disappointing because the typewriters they're using are electric like they're not really cool and then whenever disappointing um, to whom (laughs) and then when greg kinnear is like typing you know you're a lone read um the paper bail is uh brad was like shouting at the tv like put the paper bail down um i love it that's such a great detail i know I know. I love that. I mean, obviously what the typewriters are doing in the movie is, you know, whatever the contrast to the, to the Mm -hmm. impending evolution of digital technology and, you know, the emailing and so forth. But also I think, um, and actually Brad and I are like in, there's like a perpetual conversation of doing this paper, but I want to do a triple O read of typewriters because they're a great example of something that has withdrawn, right? Has exceeded mm-hmm. our ability to do something with it because mm-hmm. of, of new technologies, but they're still here mm-hmm. and they kind of become something else. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there, but yeah, this I'm, I'm, I'd be lying if I said that didn't add to my, my affection for this movie. Certainly. Greg Kinnear's character is, is, Phenomenal, not only because of his particular attachment to this particular technology that, uh, you know, we have biographical uh, references for, and also because of his, you know, his love of people like Heidegger and Foucault. My favorite line that he delivers, he just, he plays that character so perfectly. When they're at the party uh, and Tom Hanks's girlfriend, Patricia, is very excited to have met this man in the flesh and is, is like, I've read. And he, so this happens in every Nora Ephron movie. I want to point this out. This is like it's an exact repeat of the conversation that Carrie Fisher has with Billy Crystal's best friend when they try to go on this double date in which in which Billy Crystal's best friend, who's the actor's name, I can't remember. I can't remember the uh, is it Steve? Whatever. Uh 
the the character's name, he's like, I've never had me quoted back to me before. That I wrote that. That's an incredible thing. It's exactly the same moment. We're playing this up at like 10 years later where he's like, he's just overall, he's like, you, you write these things and you put them out in the universe and you think your phone's going to ring, but yeah. like, and then it doesn't. And then somebody just like brings it up at a party. This is incredible. And it's like the easiest way to a vain writer man's heart is to like acknowledge that he has written something Oh, don't I know it. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, that moment, that moment was incredible. That whole conversation is incredible in this movie as like Tom Hanks is pulling Patricia in one direction and Meg Ryan is pulling. She's like, yes, yes. She's like, she's like, have you thought about a book? Let's talk. And he's like, yes, perhaps something relevant today. Like the, the Luddite movement in like 19th century England. And I was like. I felt that. I felt that very deeply. I was like, that sounds exactly like something that I would fucking say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, also in that scene, the the like book party or whatever, the dinner party, which, by the way, how much would you love to be at that party? I know. I feel Caviar like all was the, a garnish. I, all, all these these movies that we talk about feature these like really elegant events that I just want to be at. Yeah. So the the moment with the, you know, are you taking all the caviar? That caviar is a garnish. There's sort of a, and we talked about this with my best friend's wedding. There's sort of a divorce between like class and wealth. Like yeah, clearly uh-huh. yeah. the Joe Fox character is not only very wealthy, but also supposed to be sort of like classless or tasteless. Like, you know, the big chain right. store, the yeah. like sort of like strip mall, you know, feel the vats of olive oil, price, price smart, all that. And then Kathleen Kelly's character is sort of all about like the artfulness to things and the romance and like the, the heart and the, you know, humanism and the warmth and all of that. And, And yet she's supposed to be the more like, economically marginalized character. I think that's really interesting. And I think that is so Nora Ephron herself getting in there mm, because she, at least the way she's portrayed in some like writing that I've read about her, um, she really came, she went, she had this like sort of fantasy of what going to New York and meeting and becoming Dorothy Parker, yeah. um, which is what she wanted. She wanted to be mm-hmm. like a Dorothy Parker was only to, you know, find that it was sort of all a fantasy like she as an adult when she I forget if she like meets Dorothy Parker or if she like reads her stuff more closely and realizes that it's just like sort of corny and not at all what she had built up in her mind as like an adolescent girl I feel like there's some of that in there in Kathleen Kelly like there's sort of this upper west side New York fantasy that just isn't quite real um or if it is real it's like transient but and also that, the like, door. the Upper West Side needs this sort of self-sustaining view of itself. Like, you can't, you can't literally physically make room in the real estate market for somebody who's economically marginalized in precisely the way that Kathleen Kelly is. But you still need that cutesy aesthetic quality to tell you something that you want to believe is true about yourself as... Uh, as belonging to this particular milieu. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, um, like I said, the thing that keeps me going back to this movie is, is the, you know, the atmosphere, the atmosphere, the aesthetic. And actually, um, there is an internet 
like sort of meme aesthetic Meg Ryan fall that refers to the um, like Nora Ephron, Meg Ryan, Mm -hmm. like wardrobe and Mm -hmm. seasonal atmospheric kind of aesthetic. So many Um, turtlenecks. Oh my God. So I I just want to read one more sentence from this article, um, which like perfectly describes this. The great irony of Efron's afterlife then is how quickly she's been reduced to sentimental lore. Since her death a decade ago at 71, the romanticization of her work has swelled like a movie score. A writer of tart, acidic observation has been turned into an influencer, revered Mm -hmm. for her aesthetic and for her her arsenal of lifestyle tips. On TikTok, memes like Meg Ryan Fall, the actress starred in Efron hits like When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, and You Got Mail, celebrate the prim Oxford shirts, baggy khakis, and chunky knit sweaters that Efron immortalized on screen. Um, I love that. That's another thing that I love about this movie. I love Catherine, Kathleen Kelly's look. Um, mm. I love the the baggy Oxfords, the sweaters, yeah. the khakis. I, I just, I love it all. I adore it. The like... Like you said, coziness, the the cups of tea everywhere, the twinkle lights, the I just eat it all up. That, if I'm if I'm honest, is what keeps me coming back to this movie. I, you know, thinking about that aesthetic piece, not specifically Meg Ryan's dress, but like the spaces that they inhabit and stuff like I feel like I spent a good deal of time in my like late teens and early 20s trying to find bookstores like that that had that space where I would drink this tea. My college roommates from like my senior year can tell you about my failed attempts to like locate one of those spaces in our house like next to the N64 or whatever uh, and how I would like leave <laughs> cups with tea bags still in them like all around the house consistently there was there was like a little coffee shop on division street that like constantly was going out of business and being like bought up by somebody else who would change the aesthetic a little bit and i'd be like oh maybe this time but never quite have you ever worked in a used bookstore or in a bookstore period you know i haven't and it's i i mean i i could still one day like academia very well may not work out for me and it's Mm -hmm. like a backup plan either that or barista Mm, mm-hmm. um i have an i have an alter like not an existing alter ego but i have this like like what would you call this it's not an actual alter ego it's sort of like a fantasy alter ego okay. that i'm a barista with pink hair and finger tattoos and i just kind of like you know very bohemian yeah, and, yeah. and like kind mm-hmm. of that's my life mm-hmm. part of me like wants that still for sure i don't know uh, finger tattoos are awesome so I worked in a used bookstore right after of I got out of college. I worked at. Was, the, was this before or after you inhabited Thomas Hardy's office? This was before. This was way before. This was in like 2000. This was like immediately after 9-11. That's just like the little marker there of like <laughs> when I moved to Minneapolis. I worked at Majors and Quinn booksellers like in uh, in the heart of uptown Minneapolis. And it was nothing like I imagined. It turns out to be very 
difficult, tedious work that is just mostly shelving shit and also not making any money because like, you know, the staff discount is incredible. The books were already cheap. And I'm like, well, how much could it possibly add up to if I just like, you know, we're constantly buying used books. But then like the staff would be like, if you saw something come in that you wanted, you would just throw it in your box and then you would take the box home at the end of the month and like that would get deducted out of your paycheck. I literally made no money at that job and ultimately like had to take had to like quit it for the big money job of substitute teaching mm. and like that's that's how uh that's how i ended up off of that route also majors and quinn couldn't give me more than like 30 hours a week and i like my buddy and i had rented an apartment that was way too expensive for us and not good just expensive for no reason we took the shower head off the like the the shower in the middle of winter because it got so limed up, and I don't know why that was the solution rather than like cleaning it. But like it was just like or it was like shower. It? I know, I know. Look, man, we were like twenty two. Like, shower like, heads are cheap. Shower heads are cheap. I, it didn't make sense. But all I know is that like we spent that winter basically like showering under a hose essentially. Oh, so I like the polar vortex of um that like impacted Chicago of, okay, this would have been 2014, Mm -hmm. I think. So similarly, I lived with a friend, Jenna, Mm -hmm. um, in a a shitty apartment, but it was, I don't know, it was sweet in some ways, but shitty. And the windows didn't, and it's like the fucking polar vortex, Uh mind you. And the windows don't like close all the way at the top. Mm -hmm. And we tried, I think, to like shove some foam in there, but it like didn't stay. So we just like literally froze this winter. We, Mm -hmm. there was one like central bedroom in the middle of the apartment. Um, It was a three bedroom and we just gathered in there on the floor and because it was like the one part of the apartment that was like kind of warm and lit candles and just like sat there like little witches, like, um, and when, yeah, similarly, we like did nothing about it. We were like 23 or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if that was a Nora Ephron movie, it'd be super charming <laughs> in reality. And like in retrospect, it's pretty charming. Just I'm thinking <laughs> about like my life and uh, your life in that way. And at the time, all I knew is that I was like broke and I fucking hated it. <laughs> like I was like, I was like, this is not the life of the mind. This is just <laughs> sorting things. Yeah, no, at the no, 100% at the time I was like miserable, I'm sure. And I thought like what am I doing in this fucking like frigid ass city, you know, that I'm like busting my ass to live in and like doesn't even want me. Like what am I doing? But now yeah. looking back, I love it. And it's yeah. so but that is what it is to romanticize. Yeah, which is exactly. which is so which is really what this what you've got mail is about. Yes. Like that that is absolutely the right way to bring it back to this movie it's really ironic that like nora efron acidic observer or whatever literally is associated in my mind and in everybody else's mind too with like she had this fantasy of new york city that she sort of like realized was unattainable and like her lasting legacy is like the gift of new york city's fantasy of itself that was beautiful that's your sound bite perfect i mean it that's both a good and a bad thing, you know, it like, like Upper West Siders need any other reasons to like, think of themselves as the heroes of whatever story they're telling. But like, it is what comes through above all in any Nora Ephron movie is a love of this place, which is what made it so striking to go watch 
the shop around the corner, like the 1940 Jimmy Stewart movie, which is set in Budapest, and it's all shot on a soundstage. Like, there is literally, like, one exterior shot in the entire movie, and the rest of it takes place in rooms that are, you know, clearly, you know, on some soundstage. And so, like, the place that it takes place, there's no thought about the neighborhood itself. It's just interpersonal drama in which you've got, like, four people together in one shot constantly. Uh it's just such a different movie. Here's a question for you. Uh, Pride and Prejudice is the mm-hmm. book in this movie that mm-hmm. like they are taught that it, you know, it's the book that like she's supposed to bring to the coffee shop with the rose or whatever. So that like, he knows that it's her. It's the book that he hasn't read and that he reads only because she talks about how much she loves it. Blah, blah, blah. Uh I wonder, I mean, we're definitely supposed to read some parallels between mm-hmm. like Joe Fox and uh, Mr. Darcy. Yes, Mr. D- exactly. And Kathleen and Elizabeth Bennett. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Here's something, uh, an interesting little tidbit is in the original in 1940, you know, it's not like Pride and Prejudice wasn't available. It was Anna Karenina was mm. the book that they were uh, supposed to well, so Pride and Prejudice is going to be friendlier to, you know, the audience of 1998 Absolutely. Um, than Anna Karenina. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, whatever. I don't know how, like, smart that is. Like, it's a pretty obvious sort of whatever literary yeah, right. illusion that Nora Ephron does. But I do like... Um, what I like about that is Kathleen Kelly's Meg Ryan's like feelings about that book, I guess, and the way she expresses them. Yeah. So for example, in the coffee shop, when I think this is in the coffee shop, the coffee shop mm-hmm. scene, um, when Joe Fox is kind of like mocking her yeah. like about it, like, Oh, I bet, you know, your sentimental heart just beats wild wondering if they're going to get together. Uh-huh. And he's sort of like, what's her name? What's her name? Yeah, and she's he like, knows. Yeah. Elizabeth Bennett is the heroine of Pride and Prejudice and just and okay, I don't feel that way about that book specifically, but there are definitely books and movies and like stories that are really important to me that when somebody like, you know, mocks them or yeah. doesn't remember the details, I do get kind of like facilely upset <laughs> in the way that she does. So I yeah. definitely I yeah, that's that's relatable to me. And also, okay, how about, okay, another triple O moment, because I love this. I love for those, this is what this episode for those, is. For those who aren't hip, triple O is sort of this flat ontology in which everything is an object, right? Including language conversations. The entire idea is to, is to decenter the role of the human in making sense of objects so that objects are also making sense of one another. And the key Graham Harmon piece is that every object also has something that withdraws from all relations so that there is always infinitely more to any object than its total context will contribute yes thank you doctor so um what i'm thinking of is in the coffee shop scene because you know her kathleen characters like one of her kathleen kelly one of her character arcs is she gets uh comes up short or gets tongue-tied when she's 
in a conflict and she yeah you know can't think of what to say and then she's like tormented oh like what should i have said or she thinks of something great later and in that cafe scene she she accomplishes this like she's able to say that great line like oh man we might have to look it up because it's so good she says Instead, instead of, a, of a heart, you have blah, blah, blah. Yes, you have a calculator instead and of instead a... Instead of a, a, a brain, a bottom line or something. Or instead yeah. of a brain, a calculator in place of a, a heart, a bottom line. They changed then, the specific objects, but that line also directly from the 1940 movie. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. It's, okay. It, it's like instead of, instead of a heart, you have a cigar box or something that wouldn't have worked at all in 1998 or something. That's great. Yeah. So what I'm thinking about, though, is... She sort of like can't believe that those things came out of her mouth. Like you yeah, see her right. face, mm-hmm. you know, right after, which mm-hmm. oh, Meg Ryan does such a great job with this character. Yes. Anyway, you see it on her face. She's like, oh, my God, I like I, I don't know where that came from. I love the idea of. Um, OK, so this is like partly triple O, partly sort of like, I don't know, like mystical or something. We're getting I love Cavell. Just wait. <laughs> Um, I love the idea of sort of like being inhabited by yeah. speech. Mm-hmm. And I think this has happened to me too. I, sure. I I think it happens to everybody sort of where you're kind of like, I did not feel, was that me? Did I, I didn't even have that thought. And yet mm-hmm. I uttered this thing. Like, where did that come from? I love that idea. And then you're sort of left to deal with the consequences of something that was sort of not you, but for which you were the vessel of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You remain responsible for things. I feel like this is, this is also in Hannah Arendt. I mean, she's talking a little bit more about action than words specifically, but, but about, uh, you know, the fact that like one of the tragedies of, of being a person is that you remain responsible for what your words mean, even after they've left your mouth and have changed context and all that kind of stuff and blah, blah, blah. That's her whole thing about like forgiveness is the only way that it is possible to like continue to act in the world. If that were not the case, we would just be constantly indicted by our own uh, speech, essentially. It, but yes, that that experience about of being possessed by language, about being surprised at yourself because of these various words that come out. So, like when you brought up, when you told me that that the line from the New Yorker article in our earlier uh, text conversation about Nora, Ef- uh, I'm going to butcher this, but like Nora Ephron's belief in the power of words in general, that definitely cuts two ways. The the thing that I thought of immediately was like, and this is partly because of the other podcast episode that I recorded today, uh, where Aaron Sorkin came up. And like an Aaron Sorkin kind of like view of language is that there is nothing so politically fucked, no cause so like controversial that one good speech cannot get everybody on the same page. It's like yeah. A vision of the power of language to take the place of interpersonal organization, like the right kind of rhetoric will get something accomplished. And I'm not trying to say that rhetoric won't do that, but like Nora Ephron, like when you brought that comment up, I was that is the frame that I was thinking of it in. And like Nora Ephron's romantic comedies, I mean when Harry Met Sally has that amazing New Year's Eve speech about like you want the when you realize 
You want to spend the rest of your life with somebody you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Wonderful line. And that makes everything better. Meg Ryan is pissed at him in that moment. Then that just melts her heart. And similar stuff happens here. There's something to me that is not, it's not that it's not true. It's just that it's not desirable about like the power of language to do that kind of work. It's not that it feels cheap exactly. It's like it feels dangerous <laughs> to me. Yeah. I mean, dangerous no, to I, hope for as well as to like actually experience. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Nora Ephron treats language and, and words, you know, I mean, she clearly loves words, right? I mean, there's the list that Meg Ryan's character rattles off like Felicity. She's like, I get lost oh, yeah, in the yeah. language. Pride and pride Thither. Thither. Yeah. So it's, I, I think it's cool that Nora Ephron does that. I don't necessarily agree with her, like the claim right. that she seems to be making. And I do think it's interesting to think of words, conversations as objects in like a Graham Harmon way, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the like, I don't know, all the kind of like new materialists or post-humanists, they all are troubling the linguistic turn, right? Yeah, sure. Like they're all, mm -hmm. they're all, they all have an issue with the idea that like everything is language and language is everything. So I like that they treat conversations and words in that way or think about them in that way. And I like to think that maybe Nora Ephron is thinking about them in that way a little bit, but probably Probably not. And it's probably just that I'm reading a bunch of stuff right now and it's like informing the way I'm experiencing this movie. I mean, so like I do think that Nora Ephron is thinking of it in that way, uh, not specifically through Graham Harmon and Triple O, but like no. but certainly thinking that like, I mean, one of the like mysterious, awesome things about language. I mean, the the thing that the the it seems to me that like all the new materialism and post-humanism is really pushing against is a really specific view of a specific version of the linguistic turn in which there really isn't a mystery to language. Like there's a word over here and there it's, it's meaning over here. And if we work hard enough, we can get those two things together and, mm. and erase all the sort of like mysteriousness of how language works, which, which I don't agree with. And uh, that is that version of the linguistic turn. Um, the, the crazy thing about language is that, uh, it comes to us. We are born to it. Uh, we are, we find ourselves saying thing. I mean, Bakhtin has that great line about like, we find our words in others mouths, uh, which is absolutely right. So like, you can't, there's no such thing as sort of expressing a pure thought that you have just had. All your thoughts are mediated by the entire history of this like language using group and you get to whatever. So like. I'm all on board with that. And I think that Nora Ephron is too. One of the things about like being surprised by things that come out of your mouth is it's like, it's really, it is like being in a fugue state or like you say exactly the right thing at the right time. You couldn't have formulated that because you couldn't have predicted all the conditions that are in there. You, it is pure responsiveness and there is no difference between the, except in the, in the way that sort of like the, uh, the this grammar and syntax of sentence structure forces you to sort of conceive of yourself as the agent who's doing the responding, but really it's just everything in that situation drawing out of you exactly the response. And so like Meg Ryan, it's like she blacks out for a second and then it's like, I did it. I was so in tune with everything that was happening around me that 
the right zinger came out of my mouth. I didn't even need Joe Fox's help. Only he was the catalyst for this as well. Or the thing that drew this. It's like you were, yeah, you were describing, it was like an assemblage of conditions or circumstances, like assemblage in the, um, what is it? Like vibrant, vital materialist, Jane Bennett. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jane Bennett, exactly. Yeah. Totally. Um, Although as we're talking, I guess I... I am starting to rethink because, okay, in one way you could say Kathleen Kelly and Joe Fox kind of fall for each other purely through language. Because even when the two characters in real life are like hanging out and like bumping mm. into each other for lunch and going to the flower yeah. market and the like, which is all set market. up and staged and utterly manipulated by him. Like, we just have to, like, when yes. they become friends, he knows the, that she is the person on the other end of these letters and he is withholding that information from her. That's you fucked up. You have such a problem with this. You're like, <laughs> it's so... just like, if this is a metaphor for something, I'm like, I'm waiting for like the payout. <laughs> okay. So you could say, Oh, well there it's the words and the conversations, you know, that is making them fall for each other, which, you know, okay. If we're talking about real romance, whatever, that is not how, People fall for each other because, you know, there are a lot of people that I have great conversation, like the best conversations with and thoroughly enjoy it. But I'm not I'm not in love with all those people in like an amorous way. But on the other hand, you could think about what they're doing as enjoying New York City together and enjoying like, I I don't know, just sort of urbanism or cosmopolitanism, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's a way that I could buy two people falling for each other because you fall for somebody through kind of like, I don't know, like embodied, like shared experiences. I don't Mm -hmm. know, like, like real material physicality. Um, And that is sort of what they're doing in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. There's like, I forget where I read this. It was a long time ago, but like what you see on screen often, and this also seems true of sort of real life, sort of meet cutes uh, type experiences. What you're, what you're, what you're seeing verbally and in, in those, in those sort of like argumentative phases where you're like, Oh, these people are going to fall in love. Absolutely. Because they're having exactly this kind of spat is literally just <laughs> another form of friction that like, is at the heart of all this very material sort of uh, attraction. You're watching two people sort of like rub up against each other in a way that is unexpected and like not, not pleasurable and, but also whatever abrasive. And so, you know, so there, there really is something to that, that like that, that is that, for all the credit that Nora Ephron deservedly gets for putting great lines in people's mouths, it's not, people don't hear beautiful sentences and then fall for the other person as a result of that. That's literally never how it works. God, if I could go back and tell my like 18 year old self that like, that's not how it works, save myself (laughs) a lot of looking like a dumbass (laughs) for the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think Nora Ephron does know that. And I think that's like her, her, her ultimate kind of heartbreak. Um, Mm. And I think she's sort of like, 
I don't know, like memorializing that fantasy in these movies that she makes. Because I think in like real life, Nora Ephron did realize that 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 isn't how things work and that that is a fantasy. And it's so crazy just to make this point again, that like that fantasy is the thing that makes Nora Ephron's career, that she ends up selling back to the uh, the culture that, you know, bequeathed it to her in the first place. Yes. I think, you know, I I think if if anyone takes anything away from this conversation, I think it should be that I don't think that culture has done Nora Ephron justice. I don't, I think it's a shame actually, as much as Mm -hmm. I love this movie and as much as I love when Harry met Sally and Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm, I'm a little ashamed that I haven't read her, her novels, you know, that I haven't read her as, um, and maybe I, maybe I will, maybe I'll make a point to do that because I think that she could have, I mean, I'll say again, I think the one thing that kept her from being like a Joan Didion or a Susan Sontag Mm -hmm. was kind of circumstance and that she needed to make money. So she started writing, writing, um, you know, screenplays. Uh, And, and I don't know. Yeah. I think if the, I think the takeaway is that Nora Ephron is an undervalued writer Mm -hmm. and thinker. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Send us feedback at point10pod at gmail.com or look us up on Mastodon at point10pod at home.social. It's been a great first season and we'll be kicking off season two immediately after New Year's with Independence Day and then Jurassic Park. We open this episode with the famous cafe scene between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. So let's send you off with the cafe scene from 1940s, The Shop Around the Corner, between Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan. I'm Derek Gottlieb. This is the Point 10 Podcast, and we will see you in the new year. Oh, I see you're reading tall stories on a credit now. Yes, do you mind? No, no. I just didn't expect to meet you in a cafe with Tolstoy. That's all. Quite a surprise. I didn't know you cared for high literature. There are many things you don't know about me, Mr. Krolik. Uh-huh. Uh, have you read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky? No, I haven't. I have. There are many things you don't know about me, Miss Novak. As a matter of fact, there might be a lot we don't know about each other. You know, people seldom go to the trouble of scratching the surface of things to find the inner truth. Well, I really wouldn't care to scratch your surface, Mr. Crowley, because I know exactly what I'd find. Instead of a heart, a handbag. Instead of a soul, a suitcase. And instead of an intellect, a cigarette lighter, which doesn't work. Well, that's very nicely put. Yes, comparing my intellect with a cigarette lighter that doesn't work. Yeah, that's a very interesting mixture of poetry and meanness. Meanness, let me Well, now, don't misunderstand me, Miss Novak. I'm only trying to pay you a compliment. Mr. Crowley, please, I told you I was expecting somebody. Look, if your party doesn't...